Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. I'm so excited to be joined by Batya Angar Sargon while Robbie is at jury duty today. Welcome, Batya. Thank you. What a great way to start the new year. I'm so excited to be here with you, Brianna. What a pleasure. Love a left takeover. So, Batya... <laughs> Well, hope, hopefully the audience will tolerate us uh, coming from a more leftist position uh, this morning. But tell us what we have planned on tap today. We have a great show planned. Uh, another new COVID variant has been named, and we'll speak with Dr. Mihul Suthar about critics who say that vaccines could be to blame. Plus, Representative Rokana says he'd be willing to support a moderate consensus candidate for Speaker of the House. We'll ask him more about that when he joins us later. But first, let's break down what happened on Capitol Hill yesterday. Another disappointing day for Speaker hopeful Kevin McCarthy. After completing three further rounds of voting for a total of six, McCarthy still has failed to whip the 218 votes needed to win. And this even after former President Trump announced his full endorsement of the California congressman on Truth Social before voting took place yesterday. Members adjourned last night, shortly after 8 p.m., and will reconvene today again at noon. Meanwhile, over on Pennsylvania Avenue, President Biden had this to say about the whole ordeal. How do you think it looks to the rest of the world? It's finally coming out of, you know, the first time we're really getting through the whole issue relating to January 6th. Things are settling out. And now, for the first time in 100 years, you can't move. I mean, I really mean it. I know you know international relations. It's not a good look. It's not a good thing. It's the United States of America. And I hope they get their act together. <laughs> All right, Biden saying it's not a good look. You know, I got to say, Batya, while I appreciate why Democrats would want to kind of push this united message that Republicans are in disarray, that they can't legislate, that the party can't get its act together, there is an aspect of it that seems a little performative to me, given that this is the same kind of procedural maneuver that either party could get caught up in, and that ultimately, I'm not sure how Republicans across the country are actually perceiving it, whether they see it as a failure at a party level whether they see, see it as a failure of two or a handful of 20 rogue individuals, the same way that Manchin and Cinema were these rogue individuals on the left-hand side of the aisle that were mucking up Biden's agenda for the last two years. What do you make of this choice to frame it this way? I think it's very interesting. You know, you've been hearing um, there's sort of two ways to see it. There's a lot of people saying they're just obstructionists, right? They're just getting in the way of even the priorities that the Republican Party might have, um, you know, for the for this new Congress. On the other hand, you have people on the left and on the right saying, no, this is supposed to happen. This is what dissent looks like. You know, the Republicans should be proud that they have more dissent in their ranks than the Democrats. I think that the weakness in that argument is that, um, you know, these uh, five and then 19 and then now about 20 um, breakaways, um, they don't have any policy requests. They didn't come into this saying, hey, Kevin McCarthy, you promised you were going to you know, withhold funding from Ukraine. We're not going to be giving a blank check anymore. We want that as a commitment or we're going with somebody else. They didn't come in and say, hey, the border is effectively open. We want a commitment that within the first week we're going to see something on that. They came in only with procedural requests, 
only with a desire to sort of elevate their own names and to register their dissent in a sort of broad way, but without actual policy agenda items that fit with the America first narrative. And I think that's where they really fell down on an opportunity to make a real stand. And I think that the, the attempt to cast this as MAGA versus establishment is very deeply misguided because mm-hmm. there's really nothing America first in their requests. And some of the most America first people, including you know, pres- former President Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene are solidly in McCarthy's camp. That's such an important point because I have heard so many pundits try to characterize this as a MAGA issue. You heard Joe Biden there make a reference to 1-6, that this is somehow a continuation of that trend. But there really are people on both sides of this uh, conflict from that particular political camp. And as you pointed out, there has been a real deficit of specificity as to what these people are asking for, what they're actually holding out for. Now, I think that's strategic. They're, they have been asked to put things in paper by on paper by Kevin McCarthy and refused. I think that's obviously because the second they have some concrete demands, McCarthy seems pretty willing to fulfill them, like anything they ask for, just to get this show on the road. And they understand that their leverage and power comes from holding this out as long as possible. Because you're right, I don't think it's about ideology. It's about um, amplifying their own individual personal power within the party, which is a formidable goal. It's a reasonable goal, as I talk about in my radar a little bit. I think that it's worth making sure that your party knows that you have a credible threat for leverage going forward. However, if you want to keep the support of the American public while you're going through this, you absolutely need to say things that indicate that your entire raison d'etre isn't just self-interested. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, former President Trump's endorsement of Kevin McCarthy for speaker did not go over well with one of his most high-profile allies on the Hill. Here's Congresswoman Lauren Boebert calling him out on the House floor. Let's stop with the campaign smears and tactics to get people to turn against us, even having my favorite president call us and tell us we need to knock this off. I think it actually needs to be reversed. The president needs to tell Kevin McCarthy that, sir, you do not have the votes and it's time to withdraw. With that, I yield. Thank you. Bajia, what do you make of Trump's role in all of this? I mean, I can't imagine how distressed he must be at seeing that his command that they support McCarthy didn't move a single vote. I mean, talk about sort of fading uh, relevance. That to me was a real signal. Um, I have to say somebody else who likes to test his influence, Elon Musk as well, tweeted today (laughs) that they should support McCarthy again. I mean, we'll see if there's any influence there, but I don't think there will be. Um, You know, I think that really what this um, what this sort of draws attention to for me is I really think people misunderstood the role that Trump played in the Republican Party. You know, it, it really was not so much fealty to him as it was fealty to what he represented, which was the desire of voters who have been really abandoned by both sides, uh, you know, white working class Americans and then increasingly working class Americans who are black and Hispanic. He was a very much a reflection of their desires with a lot of charisma and also a lot of, you know, personal failures. Right. Um, and, you know, he, as long as he reflected, you know, where that working class forgotten uh, voter was, the people who NAFTA really left behind, right? 
he had a lot of power, but when he became obsessed with himself, right, and, and January 6th really represented that, when it stopped being they stole everything from you and it started being they stole everything from me, you really started to see his influence wane. And of course, the 2022 midterm elections were, you know, you know, uh, exhibit A of that as well. And I think that this is just further proof of that. Um, although, like I said, I, you know, it's, 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 it's not clear to me that the MAGA agenda is the one that is being embodied by this breakaway rebellion faction. Yeah, it's interesting. I've seen a mix of comments uh, and heard a mix of things from people. I will say that there's something about this characterization of what the holdouts are fighting for as purely procedural that I don't think is accurate, or at least it's not an accurate read of how it's being perceived more broadly. Because the fact of the matter is, if you perceive yourself as an anti-establishment figure and you see Congress as a core part of the problem of what's gone wrong in this country, the corruption of Congress, the Byzantine rulemaking, regulations that are out of hand, et cetera, then people just gumming up the works or asking for procedural reforms that, that enable them to prevent uh, Congress from acting or to get a new speaker without all of the hoops and, and, and bells and whistles actually does seem like a genuinely substantively anti-establishment move. They are in Congress stopping and shutting down Congress. And that feels pretty substantive to folks whose core concern has been draining the, sh the swamp and reforming Congress. So, you know, I, I, I do think this is a, a weird reorientation of who's an insider, who's an outsider, as there are people literally inside Congress. Congress positioning themselves as defending an institution. Um, you know, Republicans getting on TV and arguing, Donald Trump making a call and arguing that the institution itself and it's how it how it runs needs to be protected and smoothed out. And another group of people saying, hey, I'm willing to stand for something, anything, and prioritize that over the workings of Congress as usual. We'll see how that continues to play out. Yeah, absolutely. And I also do have to say, um, when they switched from nominating Jim Jordan, who's, of course, voting for um, Kevin McCarthy, to, to voting for Byron Donalds, who's a black Republican, you know, New York, raised in a single family, uh, single parent home, you know, somebody who you would typically associate with the Democrats, but who's a very proud conservative, very proud Republican. I certainly felt a difference. I certainly felt, you know, that that was historic to see, you know, for the first time in American history, not just one black man, who's going to lead a party, but another one elected for it. Now, of course, you know, I've seen all of the criticism that this is just a prop, you know, they're not treating him like a human. This is Republicans playing identity politics. That may be the case. But in the speech in which Chip Roy nominated Byron Do uh, Donalds, he also brought up funding for Ukraine. And I guess the point I would make is sometimes... Um, people do the right thing, not necessarily for the right reasons. And I, I have to say, I, did, I felt I was, as my people say, verklempt in that moment <laughs> and seeing this, uh, this, this historic moment. How, how did you think about it, Brianna? Well, look, I, I thought that Byron, Byron had some nice moments on camera. Uh, it was a moment to expose a Congress member that I certainly wasn't very familiar with to the public. Uh, he has a little bit of a viral clip about how he wasn't going to be intimidated, how he was a big guy uh, from New York. Uh, who can handle his own. Um, he's a HBCU grad, uh, went to FAMU down in Florida. That's how he ended up there, I suppose, uh, and as a representative from there. And I think that it was a good opportunity to showcase what uh, kind of a deep bench the Republicans have on offer, even if ultimately I do think it's a performative case. So look, I, I think that they're maximizing the moment in a way that, again, I would like to have seen the left do back in 2021. And while I think it's, you know, 
a stunt. Uh, I appreciate their willingness to kind of go there and use the media to his advantage as best they can. So I'm certainly looking forward to see what they pull out of their hat as voting continues today. And I will be telling you all what's on my radar coming up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Fatia, AOC made an interesting admission this week. While doing the media rounds about the Republican struggle to nominate a Speaker of the House, she made an explicit reference to the Washington coercion machine that is mostly only alluded to. Take a listen. I do think that in terms of some of those conversations, I mean, listen, some of us in the House of Representatives uh, are independent in certain ways from our party. And I do believe that uh, in some of those conversations, um, there are things that are happening on the floor. These machinations are happening on the floor. And sometimes the leadership of your party, uh, in this case, the Republican Party, will be making claims uh, in order to try to twist arms and get people in line. Did you hear that? This clip has been circulating since Tuesday, and I didn't even catch it the first time I saw it. But here, AOC makes explicit reference to herself as, quote, independent in certain ways from the Democratic Party, and that as a result, quote, sometimes the leadership of your party will be making claims in order to try to twist arms and get people in line. Now, AOC was clearly making reference there to the Republican holdouts who are being whipped like a French meringue into backing McCarthy as Speaker of the House. But AOC is also revealing more than she might have intended about her own personal experiences with Democrats. As I explained in detail yesterday, many on the left wanted progressive Democrats in the House to deploy the same force-the-vote maneuver rebel rebellions are now using to deny Pelosi the gavel back in 2021. But they didn't. AOC in particular offered a range of excuses for her inaction at the time, excuses which have only grown more stale over the years. She claimed she needed to reserve political capital for the fight for 15, which failed, and to secure committee positions, which they did not get. In fact, by failing to show they meant business, it seems obvious now, in retrospect, that progressives taught establishment Democrats that they could be walked over and demeaned with impunity. And that's exactly what we've seen during the Biden administration. For example, Biden began his term by immediately walking back his commitment to a $15 minimum wage. And look, if you think I'm being unfair in that it's really Republicans, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin that are to blame, recall that despite assurances from veteran Congress members that the minimum wage did satisfy the requirements of budget reconciliation and could be passed as part of the American Rescue Plan with only 51 votes, Joe Biden started signaling as early as February of 2021 that he thought his parliamentarian would decide the matter differently, and lo and behold, she did. Even though the parliamentarian's advice has no binding authority and past presidents have fired parliamentarians who did not advise in accordance with their policy priorities, Biden's administration seemingly jumped at the opportunity to scrap the wage raise. Chuck Schumer stripped it from the American Rescue Plan. Bernie tried to get it back in, but doing so took 60 votes, not 51. And, you know, we all remember how that went down. Miss Cinema, Miss Cinema. <laughs> no. But let's not forget, some progressives considered holding out, withholding their votes for the American Rescue Plan entirely as a form of leverage to force establishment Democrats to finally raise the wages for America's worst-paid workers. Wages that, by the way, haven't been raised 
since 2009. But as Time reported, House Progressive Caucus leader Pramila Jayapal talked them out of it. Quote, progressives have been sort of pushed to the margin so often in politics that I think we may have gotten used to that, Jayapal explained. And so people are very inclined to say, oh, this happened again. We didn't get everything we wanted. But she taught her colleagues to realize we should take the win. We should take the win. Did progressives have to have their arms twisted to get them in line there? Or was Jayapal able to get by with a somewhat softer touch? Five months later, Pelosi demonstrated unambiguously aggressive coercion techniques, techniques that left AOC crying on the House floor. It happened after AOC voted against funding Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system on the grounds that Israel stood accused of human rights abuses and war crimes against Palestinians. But in stunning C-SPAN footage, you can see Nancy Pelosi in pink engage Amen. AOC in a spirited conversation. When the vote was retaken after that conversation, AOC had switched her vote from no to present. You can see her appearing to wipe tears away in this clip of her being comforted by Barbara Lee. Hey, on, on House Resident 483 amendments, he votes nay. No one knows exactly what Pelosi said to ARC or how she twisted her arm to get her in line, but something certainly happened here. And I'm guessing the tools Pelosi used were more stick than proverbial carrot. When asked to explain her tears, AOC wrote, yes, I wept. I wept at the complete lack of care for the human beings that are impacted by these decisions. I wept at an institution choosing a path of maximum volatility and maximum consideration for its own political convenience. And I wept at the complete lack of regard I often feel our party has for its most vulnerable and endangered members and communities. Sure, but at the end of the day, she fell in line. And she never revealed what Pelosi said to her, in effect, protecting Pelosi from having to be judged for whatever threat made the young Congress member cry. And that's a choice in and of itself. Later that year, progressives were steamrolled again when another piece of must-pass legislation, the Build Back Better bill, was bifurcated with all of the social safety net parts of the bill that progressives wanted in one half and all of the establishment-friendly infrastructure projects in the other. There was no reason to do this, of course, other than to damn the human infrastructure projects and strip progressives of their leverage. But once again, Pelosi and Jayapal were on the scene whipping progressives into submission. For a while, progressives claimed they would hold the line and not vote on the traditional infrastructure bill without the human infrastructure bill. But in a move that surprised absolutely no one, Manchin killed the human infrastructure bill. Quote, we have been saying this for weeks, that this would happen, Representative Cory Bush told MSNBC. Having coupled together the two bills was the only leverage we had. And what did the caucus do? We tossed it. Well, I feel sorry for Bush if it weren't all so predictable. It was clear to many of us on the left that the last moment of real leverage the progressives had was the force the vote moment, during which they held Nancy Pelosi's gavel in their hands. Having not acted on that threat, they spent the next two years being dismissed and bullied like the powerless empty suits they had become. Power, after all, concedes nothing without demand. And from the start of Biden's administration, the progressives made it clear that they would not be demanding anything at all. The disrespect progressives have suffered as a result is incredible. 
APACT and its allied pro-Israel fund, DMFI, worked overtime to fund corporate candidates to run against progressives. And the Progressive Caucus, not just the Democratic Party as a whole, but the Progressive Caucus, led by Pramila Jayapal, endorsed those DMFI candidates against frontrunners like Nina Turner in Ohio. Keep in mind that Jayapal and Turner worked together on the Bernie campaign. What a betrayal. Whereas once the Democratic Party prioritized protecting all of its members, saying it would blackball vendors who worked for insurgent candidates that dared to challenge Democratic incumbents, once progressives became those incumbents, the rules seemed to change. Now the litmus test for party protection is no longer, are you the front runner in an open contest or are you the incumbent, but are you the right kind of Democrat? Hakeem Jeffries has a pattern of backing establishment opponents to progressives in primary contests, and he even started a PAC with conservative representative Josh Gottheimer to protect incumbent Democrats from primary challenges from their left. Jeffries actually stumped for Nina Turner's opponent, Chantel Brown, on the campaign trail, and he has been openly hostile to progressives for his entire career. But despite all of this, progressives, powerless progressives, are clapping, tweeting, giggling, and eating popcorn enthusiastically as they vote again and again for Hakeem Jeffries during the House Speaker proceedings, with no sense of irony whatsoever. Congressman Bowman tweeted, McCarthy must be red as a tomato right now from the embarrassment of getting fewer votes than Jeffries. But aren't you, Congressman, a progressive, embarrassed to be uncritically supportive of a man who has worked so assiduously to undermine your colleagues or prospective colleagues in the progressive caucus? Instead of selfies, shouldn't this be a moment for stolid self-reflection over how you ended up a mere spectator for a power struggle waged by much less principled people than you, but which could result in more power than you've ever leveraged in Congress? As one journalist put it on Twitter, it's rather pathetic to watch Democrats and leftists gloating about the fact that the Republican Party seems to still allow for a tiny amount of dissent and debate, while their own party is an absolute authoritarian Borg that demands lockstep allegiance from its members. Indeed. Now, there is some glimmer of hope. AOC, at least, seems to realize that there are leverage opportunities for progressives in this moment. As the vote stretches on and things become more dire for McCarthy, it's likely that the conversation will shift to one about an alternative unity candidate, one AOC says she might vote for if she gets some concessions, like committee seats. Now, this is smart, but it bears noting that this is literally the power that progressive media figures like myself were begging progressive electives to understand they had back in 2021, back when Democrats held both chambers and the White House. AOC is poised to bargain for committee seats, maybe more. But imagine what progressives could have gotten if they were the ones dominating a news cycle for days or weeks, demanding popular benefits for the American people. What if it was them and not Lauren Boebert demanding the country's attention? What could they have achieved? Well, we can only imagine. Pachi, this is obviously Diana, a stick in my crown. Wow. <laughs> that was incredible. I mean, uh, you just brought so much to the table that I, I never would have thought about it that way. I was all prepared to defend AOC. And then you brought up the Iron Dome vote. And I remembered like how dispiriting it was like 
either vote against it, have, you know, have your your beliefs, stand up for your principles, insist that we should have a more robust debate about funding the Iron Dome and funding to Israel, which we should, right, and stand for that, or, you know, cave, stand against it and take responsibility for your decision. Instead, she voted present and then burst into tears demanding sympathy. It was so, uh, it was just really, really appalling, I think. Um, I will say, all right, so here's sort of where I think the defense of the kind of establishment move would come from. Um, um, Look, we live in a country that is very robust in the debates that regular Americans are having. Um, we're, we're, we're divided between, you know, Democrats, Republicans, people who are socially conservative, economically protectionist. And then, you know, as I always like to joke to Robbie, about 3% of Americans are libertarian. Um, but, you know, when you, when you have a situation like that, that's so divided, I think that's a good thing, right? That That's democracy. Uh, you know, people in swing districts, people who can appeal to independence are always going to be more important. And 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 I don't mean that from a values point of view. I just mean that simply from a numbers point of view. They're the going to have wheel gets the grease. Exactly. Because, you know, Nancy Pelosi once meanly, very meanly said about AOC's district that I think she said a glass of water could win that, you know, Democrat could win that <laughs> district. Right. Really, really mean. But also, you know, like it's like not 100 percent inaccurate. Right. So and I think from that point of view, um, the move here, which I'm sure you don't agree with me about this, but I think the move what AOC just the her final move of saying, hey, why not think about realignment possibilities here? Why not think about, you know, who we can think think about on the other side who might want to partner with us through the establishment, right? Circumvent establishment Democrats and get to those populist Republicans maybe, right? Get seats, you know, in that sense. I think that's a real power move. And I think somebody like um, Representative Rokana, who we're going to speak to today, um, really seems to me to be making strides in that way. And I think that there's just so much you can accomplish. Like, I'll never forget when Bernie Sanders and Josh Hawley together demanded a second round of stimulus checks for Americans. It was mm. a real power move. The two of them getting up there, the representatives of, of populism on both sides and saying, look, Americans are still hurting. They're still suffering. I think there's a lot of common ground there. Yeah, I certainly can appreciate what the establishment Democrats' motives are. Uh, and I can appreciate why it is that someone like AOC would even stay mum on the ways that she's being pressured and coerced behind the scenes if she was, in fact, getting substantive things in exchange for it. But I think what we've observed over the course of the past year, that while that was thrown out there as the excuse for why AOC wasn't uh, taking the same adversarial approach that she and the rest of the squad members said they would take, and which was the whole reason for them being elected in the first place, uh, that nothing has really come of it. And so now the question is, at what point do these squad members stop staying silent about the ways they've been pressured behind the scenes, stop being silent about the way they've been coerced, and have the kind of open debate that is now happening in the Republican Party on the House floor. You can say that that's embarrassing, but I think a lot of people are craving that level of energy and democracy and transparency that is happening. The problem with what Republicans are doing is that they're arguing over things that I don't think are as substantive or as or as core to what uh, actual working Americans are prioritizing right now. But if the shoe were on the other foot, there's no reason that the progressives couldn't be using an opportunity like this to really push their message home and get the American public to side with them over Nancy Pelosi, who was clearly twisting arms in private and causing a lot of stress and chaos among progressives in the, in the party. So we'll see if this is a tipping point of sorts. I'm skeptical because it's been a long time of them keeping their head down, but we'll continue to watch this. Yes, we will. And we will have more rising right after this. 
Elon Musk will allow political ads on Twitter again. The social media company announced that it will lift the ban in the coming weeks and will allow issue-based paid content right away. Twitter joins other platforms like Facebook and YouTube, which currently allow political advertising. Twitter implemented the restriction in 2019, but the new move is seen as yet another avenue for revenue, which seems to be in need of, especially following the exodus of major advertisers in October. Elon Musk's money woes extend beyond Twitter. In December, we learned that half of his fortune had been wiped. And just yesterday, Tesla stock further plummeted 12 percent, erasing $50 billion from the company's value. Um, You know, Brianna, one of my, I think, hottest takes is a lot of people seem to think that the Tesla stock, you know, plummeting is because of Elon Musk's activities on Twitter. But I kind of see it the other way around. I think he knew this was coming. And I think that his whole uh, decision to become, you know, the avatar free speech, something I don't take very seriously, but, you know, um, really reflected the desire to find a new home um, outside the kind of electric car industry because he saw this coming. I don't know. Do you think that's too conspiratorial? (laughs) Well, I guess I have to know more. I mean, is there a particular reason why you think that he anticipated this? Was was there something going on in the market or with his companies in China? I mean, why do you think it is that he might have seen this decline on the horizon? Well, I think, you know, if you look, for example, at um, how many Chinese people are buying Teslas, that's completely, um, you know, uh, plateaued. There just aren't that many (laughs) upper class Chinese people um, in the market for electric cars. And those who are already seem to have one. Um, I think that he was first to market on a great idea that appeals to a very specific subset of Americans. But um, you see now other, uh, you know, other companies really catching up, other companies with similar ideas, similar viewpoint, Um, you know, Tesla opened in a few uh, um, big manufacturing centers and has not been able to get them fully operational. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff going on that somebody as smart as Elon Musk must have seen coming down the pike and knowing that this was going to become, you know, a thriving industry and he was no longer going to have a kind of monopoly on it. Um, and I think that a lot of the drama that uh, he generated around, you know, first floating the idea of acquiring Twitter, then acquiring it and so forth was an attempt to distract from this and and really sow roots in a, mm. in a new place where he could find maybe a home on the right, which is why his um, p- politics have been evolving so rapidly and uh, and his sympathies. Yeah, look, it certainly is an interesting take and one that I will be using as a lens to read this as it continues to develop. I mean, it is interesting that as someone who has really foregrounded his perspective as a free speech absolutist of sorts, um, and also someone who has frankly been rather complimentary of uh, previous Twitter owner Jack Dorsey's job that he did. There's been a lot of criticism of the former regimes, but Jack Dorsey has largely uh, dodged the bullet of Elon Musk's uh, critical tweets, you know, that he would take this departure from something that happened under uh, Dorsey's reign. So back in 2019, Dorsey said, quote, we believe political message reach should be earned, not bought. So is this purely a money grab on the part of, um, of Elon Musk? Is this a consequence of the Twitter files and realizing that he feels like Twitter was under too much pressure to not be involved in what was characterized as election interference and that that's something that he wants to move away from? Um, you know, what, what do you think? Is this just all about the, all about the money? 
Um, I think that he, I've said this before here, but um, I won't belabor the audience with my China take, Some another play, another another um, entity that has totally evaded um, Elon Musk's uh, poison pen on Twitter, the Chinese Communist Party, who he's completely in bed with. I'm just going to leave it at that because I think the audience <laughs> has heard me talk about this enough. But, um, you know, I've talked about before how I think there, he has sort of three competing imperatives here, right? On the one hand, I believe him that he is outraged like a lot of us at how conservatives were silenced on Twitter and wanted to rectify that and does feel that free speech is important to a functioning democracy. I'm totally willing to grant that he truly believes those things. On the other hand, he wants to turn a profit. And um, he learned very quickly that you can't have advertisers on your platform if it also has swastikas on them because they don't want their product advertised next to swastikas, even though swastikas are, of course, protected free speech. So there's a lot of things that are in competition. And I think you're totally right when it comes to political ads. I think a lot of us have this sense that um, money and politics you know, is kind of anti-free speech, if not in the letter of the law, at least in the spirit of the law, you shouldn't be able to purchase influence, you should have to rely on the strength of your ideas. And it was kind of cool that Twitter had banned that understanding its role in the public sphere as being important enough not to have that. And I think this is a case of Elon Musk choosing profitability um, over free speech, as he has done many times, um, because, yeah. um, you know, he needs the money. Well, I have, I have mixed feelings about the ban on political speech. Generally speaking, I'm very much not a fan of the increasing, growing, exp exponentially growing role that money plays in politics and the arms race that exists there, uh, and that the people with the more, most money tend to uh, have better outcomes in these contests rather than a battle of ideas. But, you know, it's not clear to me that simply banning political speech on Twitter is really getting to the root of that fundamental problem. Uh, and I don't necessarily have a strong ideological case for the ban. It is interesting, though, that this is such a departure from um, Jack Dorsey's uh, previous approach. Meanwhile, Twitter and Tesla investors are questioning Musk's management of the platform itself. One such investor, Leonidas Ricini, offered to buy Twitter at a discount, $14.5 billion, which is $30 billion less than what Elon Musk paid. What do you, what do you make of that kind of a Twitter fire, fire sale? <laughs> I just I, I just hate the race to the bottom, you know, like it's like I hate I just I'm not a fan of ownage culture. I made I made an exception for Greta Thunberg with her amazing tweet <laughs> at Andrew Tate. I thought but that was the exception that proves her. I just don't like this. You know, I just think it's so immature and it's really hard to respect people who engage in it. I've never seen somebody owned on Twitter apart from Andrew Tate, and not felt so sorry for them and not felt, you know, th this kind of thing makes me feel sorry for Elon Musk. And I don't want to feel sorry for Elon Musk. He's, actually, he's probably not the richest man in the world anymore. But I, he doesn't need he's my not. pity. But ownage culture, just it's just, you just don't, like, I don't know why they have to do that. Like, he's either going to make it profitable or he's not. He's a really smart guy. He's good at making money. Maybe he will and maybe he won't. But this kind of need to one-up each other and being nasty and humiliating each other, it's just not my thing. What about you, Brianna? Yeah, look, I, we were talking about this a little bit uh, during the break about how there's a real benefit to winning people with honey as opposed to with vinegar. And even though I certainly disagree with Elon Musk's approach and his politics on several points, there is some overlap with respect to what I think we both want Twitter to be in the abstract. And to the extent that my criticisms can be a kind of a calling in instead of a calling out, I'm happy to position myself that way. The question remains, like, is he ever going to see people that are not kind of in the same ideological um, community as him, as folks that whose opinion that he respects and will actually listen to. Many people have pointed out that, especially over the course of the last month or so, he has become a certain kind of um, 
reply guy, if you will, to only very <laughs> ideologically right folks on the internet, yeah. and that he seems to be a hall monitor yeah. of sorts that's very responsive to to big conservative accounts will say, oh, I think I'm being suppressed or what's going on with this tweet. And he's right there in the mention saying, yes, okay, I'll look at it. And that makes people feel like this isn't actually someone who has the broader interest of fairness and equity on this platform, you know, as a top priority. I mean, I think he's only human, you know, I, I definitely go back and forth between being like, look, he's doing his best and being like, God, this this sort of the thirst for the approval of like the very online right. So, okay, if you had an audience with him, what would you recommend for Twitter? What would you want to say? What would you want to see? And what would you recommend it? What would you tell him to do? Well, first, I would say it's in his best interest in terms of the public perception of him as a CEO of both Tesla and Twitter to not engage so directly with so many accounts that he should not be replying because he's getting into trouble now because he's been replying to folks like um, the libs of TikTok creator who has very recently gone beyond some of the dog whistling into explicit statements on Tucker Carlson about how she thinks that LGBT people are, I don't want to misrepresent the word she used, but something like monstrous, like undeserving of rights and beyond where a lot of people who might have some critiques of, let's say, you know, uh, when, at what age people should start to transition, they don't think that those people should be harmed or killed or murdered, things like that. And that's the space that he's heading into in terms of the people that he's engaging with. So I would tell him first and foremost not to do that. Then I would say, if you really care about transparency, you have to open up these Twitter file documents to a broader slate of journalists, including those who have been critical of you, because if the evidence is as convincing as I think it is, it behooves you to have more people, including people at mainstream outlets, having to contend with their own mistakes, their own coverage mistakes, and the kind of uh, administrative and procedural mistakes that Twitter as an institution has been making over the years. Uh, And thirdly, I would say you need to get a board back reconstituted that actually creates concrete policies that are transparent, Mm -hmm. that people can know are governing the decisions that are being made at Twitter. Because that fundamentally was the problem before, that things were going on behind closed doors. And substituting that for just Elon Musk's ideological whims in his head doesn't help people have the consistency and protection on the app that they've long been desiring. What a great list. So, Elon, if you're watching, feel free, uh, listeners, to go ahead and at him (laughs) under this video so we can get Twitter to be a better place. We'll have more rising for you right after this. In recent weeks, various Omicron variants have dominated COVID transmission across the United States. The newest one, XBB 1.5, poses a unique risk to the population as it has more than doubled its share of the COVID-19 pie in the last four weeks, accounting for 41 percent of all new infections in December. Virologists warn that this variant has the potential to drive a new COVID surge. Nearly three years after the pandemic began and two years after the development of vaccines, new COVID variants still continue to develop. And growing evidence suggests repeated vaccinations might make people more susceptible to the new variant and could be fueling the virus's rapid evolution. Joining us now to discuss this is virologist, immunologist, and assistant professor at Emory University, Mihul Sutar. Welcome. Thank you very much. So I guess my first question would be, um, did forcing people to get vaccinated over and over end up harming us? No, not at all. I think uh, what we're seeing here is as this virus continues to uh, evolve, uh, and this is mainly because uh, the virus continues to transmit, 
spread in populations. The virus has the ability to change over time to sort of increase its transmissibility. One of the uh, uh, things that happens with the virus is that it accumulates mutations, which uh, end up evading antibody responses. Uh, but no, I do not think it's because of repeated vaccinations that uh, fuels these variants. Can you help us understand uh, what the predictions are about the relevance of this new variant? Because it does seem like there are periodically reports of new variants that take over the share of the COVID pie, as as we put it, um, that dominate over others, but they don't necessarily always seem to manifest in spikes in hospitalizations or some of the indicators that we're going through another kind of surge or an amplification in the crisis. So is it necessarily a problem that it's just a different vi- a strain of the virus taking over? Or, you know, is there evidence that this particular strain is going to be more harmful or any other kinds of downstream side effects? So I think we're still trying to figure out whether this particular strain is going to be more harmful because I think it's still in the early days. Uh, but I think it's uh, different than what we've seen in the past with some of the Omicron variants. When the original Omicron variant emerged last year, uh, we had just begun giving booster vaccines. Uh, people were getting them, uh, but also a majority of the uh, population, I think greater than 90% now from a har- recent Harvard study has shown that uh, many individuals have had, had at least one exposure uh, to SARS-CoV-2. Uh, with this particular variant, uh, we not only have multiple booster, we have a bivalent booster. Uh, more than likely, individuals have had hybrid immunity, which is a combination of infection and vaccine-induced immunity. And also we have uh, tools like Paxlovid at our disposal to help reduce uh, disease severity and and time uh, at which we have a high viral load. So we have lots of tools compared to what we did a year ago. But this particular XBB variant, as well as a BQ variant that's also dominating as well, uh, have have accumulated additional mutations that uh, further put strain on the vaccines that we have generated. Uh, the bivalent vaccine was generated against one strain called BA5, which was at the time that that bivalent booster was uh, deployed. That was the dominating strain. Now we've kind of gone a little bit further away with the XBB variant. Yeah. Okay. So go, go ahead, ahead Bria. Oh, I was going to say, forgive me if this is um, a stupid question, but I think at least one of our viewers will have the same question as me. So I'm going to go ahead and ask it. Um, uh, if this if this variant ends up being um, more dangerous, having harsher symptoms than an earlier variant, and this mutation came, you know, as a result of the fact that uh, somebody got bo- we we many of us got boosted, many people got boosted for uh, an earlier variant, right? Um, aren't we producing a more dangerous variant by getting these continued boosters? And wouldn't that be a reason to sort of stop doing i mean what 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 are a what what is get to be gained from the boosters and b how come they aren't um seen as in some way uh, putting us at risk so uh, as i said i i don't think booster vaccinations are helping to fuel these new variants uh what we previously had was a monovalent booster dose which was against that original ancestral spike protein uh what we have Uh, accumulated over the last year with these Omicron variants are mutations that go further and further away from that ancestral spike, meaning that we needed to update that vaccine 
to help combat some of these new Omicron sublineages. This is the same kind of formula that's used uh, every year with the flu vaccine when we have to update the flu vaccine uh, to sort of match the current circulating strain. Except with SARS-CoV-2, everything is much more condensed. Everything's happening at such a rapid pace and at a global pace as well. And so with the BA5 bivalent booster, it has many of the same mutations that are present in this XBB variant. So you're helping to train your immune system and starting to generate some of these antibodies that can now protect you against some of these emerging variants. But the one thing I'll mention is that while vaccines tend to take uh, a, 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 an important point in terms of, you know, are these variants being fueled by these vaccines? I don't think so. But I think one thing that has to be kept in mind is that multiple repeated infections are also not a viable strategy as well. Because what we're learning more and more is that anytime someone gets uh, an additional set of infections, it increases your risk of hospitalization, but it also increases the risk of uh, long COVID or post-acute sequelae that we're still learning about. One, two, or three infections, you tend to get an increased risk of these post-acute sequelae. Yeah, I'm, I'm sympathetic to people who look at what's being recommended, rec recommended, excuse me, with respect to a vaccination schedule and a booster schedule and say, you know, the, there is increasing evidence that we don't know what's really going to happen. And there's some downstream side effects from, especially in certain populations, younger men, et cetera, for getting consecutive vaccines and boosters for the, to the end of their life. And that maybe we should have had different kinds of um, recommendations about who should and who shouldn't be vaccinated or boosted um, in various age ranges and risk levels, and, et cetera. But I also really take your point that the same kinds of risks that present um, and marginally in the population for consecutive vaccinations and boosts present for people who consecutively catch COVID. And that really seems to have put people in a catch-22 where you're kind of picking your poison. And I wonder what you make of what interventions could have been helpful here. I saw a study recently that showed in France they're really pushing to focus on air quality so that whether or not people boost or vaccine or, or vaccinate, um, they're able to have less susceptibility to the vaccine because, it's, uh, sorry, to the, the virus because it's just less prominent in the air. Do you think that because of the risks that are presented presenting from both catching COVID over and over again and in some parts of the population getting vaccinated consecutively, that there should be more of a focus on prevention, masking, social distancing, air quality, things like that? I, I think those are tools that we can always use. I, I think in areas where you see increases in infections, where you start to see these surges of infection, I think using better air quality, you know, having better systems that purify the air, uh, using masking, social distancing, I think help in preventing infections. Um, they're not always 100%, but they're just tools that we can use at our disposal to help reduce our risk of getting infected, especially in high-risk settings. Um, I think uh, what we know about vaccines is that they were never intended to protect against infection. Uh, they're really designed to help reduce the risk of uh, severe disease, hospitalizations, and death. And, and the record has shown that that's what these vaccines are doing. Uh, but as we get further and further away from the original ancestral virus, I think uh, using these bivalent boosters uh, will help uh, in further protecting us against uh, severe disease, hospitalization, and death.
Hmm. Uh, Professor, were there any um, recommendations that were made in earlier variants that you feel now um, should not be made? Were there any um, uh, policy decisions that were made vis-a-vis COVID, vis-a-vis boosters, vis-a-vis vaccines that you think now at this stage we've learned better um, and and, and should not be employed now or should not have been employed then? I think what was done previously is perfectly fine. I think moving forward, I think uh, what would help uh, the public is that, uh, and, and again, these things take years to develop, uh, is being able to uh, develop vaccines that can drive more durable or longer lasting immune uh, responses so that we're not dealing with uh, situations where we have to get boosters every three to six months. I don't think anyone's, I think many people are not in favor of that. I think everyone would love to have a booster that maybe would pair well with when you get a flu vaccine. Uh, and that way you can get both at the same time. Um, but I think these are things that are still in development. Yeah, Doctor, I just had one last question for you. We were talking earlier about um, the relationship, if there's any at all, between um, new variants and vaccination rates, et cetera. And my understanding is that there, you, you say there's no connection there. Isn't it true that part of what's going on with the creation of these new variants is that variants are able to manifest when there's large parts of the population that are not vaccinated and also catching the disease a lot so it can incubate. And that's part of the reason why there was um, so, so much criticism about the short-sightedness of the policy that said large parts of the world were not going to have access to the vaccine at all until 2023, 2024. Yeah, I think um, one thing that we always have to keep in mind is that this is a global problem. This is not just a problem within the United States. It's not a problem within a certain country. While we can solve a problem within the United States by, you know, getting high vaccination rates, uh, not having high vaccination rates or even booster vaccines in other parts of the world. Uh, it's uh, We clearly see that these variants can spread quite rapidly, uh, either within the United States or uh, in other parts of the world as well. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, today, doctor. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. We'll have more rising for you right after this. California Representative Ro Khanna appeared on Fox News yesterday and shared that he would consider voting for a moderate Republican for House Speaker. Let's take a look. I would consider the right Republican, someone I could trust, uh, Brian Fitzpatrick, uh, Mike Gallagher, who actually spoke eloquently on the floor, David Joyce. Uh, but there need to be two conditions. One, you can't have debt ceiling, uh, the debt ceiling debate or shutdown uh, as something that takes the country hostage. And two, there'd have to be some agreement on subpoena power. But I, I'm open to uh, a Republican who could work to put the interests of the American people uh, first. Representative Ro Khanna joins us now to discuss. Welcome, Congressman. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So for those of us who were interested in these leverage opportunities back in the force the vote realm, it's really nice to hear you talking about this kind of concretizing list of asks that the left, that progressives, that Democrats could get out of the obstruction that's happening right now in Congress. You know, you've mentioned the debt ceiling. AOC uh, mentioned, I believe it was yesterday, that there uh, could be some committee appointments that come out of this. How likely do you think it is that you'll get those kinds of concessions? And if it's likely, why not uh, run up the score and try to get as much as possible in this moment? 
Well, I do agree with you, Brianna. We should try to run up the score. And the biggest thing would be if we could get six Republicans to vote for Hakeem Jeffries. And uh, <laughs> let's see, but that should be the, the first goal uh, to, to try to get uh, the Republicans to vote for Hakeem. If, it is, if that doesn't work, uh, what I've said is we need to have uh, re- not just the personality of the right Republican, but concrete concessions that they don't hold this country uh, a, a hostage to a debt ceiling debate. Uh, as it is, there are people on the far right talking about not uh, raising the debt ceiling. That would be catastrophic for the world economy, that they commit to not shutting down the government, that there are uh, equal appointments on the committees uh, so that uh, we have equal subpoena power and can shut down frivolous uh, investigations. Uh, These are all things that uh, uh, we should uh, demand. Um, it's so great to see you. Uh, last time you were here, I said that you sounded more like an America first populist than like a Democrat. And you made fun of me and laughed at me and said that I was erasing your whole progressive record. But I think I'm being somewhat vindicated here. Uh, is there anything you can tell us about um, behind the scenes conversations that you're having, um, either with Republicans um, or with fellow Democrats about, um, you know, potentially crossing that aisle? Well, there are informal conversations, but I don't think there's been anything uh, formal to, to, to that end. Uh, they are still, the Republicans, trying to, to get Kevin McCarthy to, to be speaker. Now, I know there's some uh, Democrats who are upset that I, I even floated this, but what is the alternative? Uh, the alternative is to get uh, a Kevin McCarthy or a Scalise uh, with commitments to the far right where we're going to have a debt ceiling showdown, where we're going to have a shutdown, and where we're going to have frivolous investigations into Hunter Biden. Uh, I'd rather that we either try for Hakeem as speaker or we try for uh, a Republican who's going to make concessions. And that's that's why I floated uh, the idea. Congressman Connick, it's not a real possibility that Republicans would cross the aisle to vote for Hakeem Jeffries, is it? Well, look, there are a few Republicans in swing districts uh, as uh, as, as McCarthy continues to make all these concessions to the far right that may say, uh, I'm willing to do this, or Republicans who may be willing uh, to, to retire, who may or may be thinking of running for the Senate or governor. I, do I think it's a likely scenario? No. Uh, but is it worth pursuing? Absolutely. We should try to pursue it at this time uh, where the Republican Party is really facing chaos. I mean, I ask in part because it's an interesting posture for a progressive like yourself to be in, to be advocating for someone like Hakeem Jeffries, who has been so historically hostile to progressives in the House. Obviously, there was the big kerfuffle earlier this year, or last year, rather, about the CPC, the Congressional Progressive Caucus's choice to endorse Chantel Brown over Nina Turner. Pramila Jayapal and Nina Turner both worked on the Bernie Sanders campaign, as you did. It's, it was felt to many people to be like a betrayal of what it meant to be on the Progressive Caucus in the first place. Akeem Jeffries has uh, co-founded this super PAC that's aimed at uh, defeating progressive challengers to the the attack Democratic incumbents from the left. And this is the person that there's an effort to uh, generate energy around uh, for the speakership. Is there any conversation happening about progressives using this opportunity to talk about who they would prefer to be as as a, a speaker that would better represent the interests of the left flank of the Democratic Party? As you know, Hakeem Jeffries is part of the Progressive Caucus. Uh, he has sat down with Progressive Caucus members. He sat down with uh, all of the caucus, and he had 212 votes. It was unanimous. Uh, now, are there areas that I am more 
progressive than uh, Hakeem Jeffries? Sure, I am for Medicare for all, uh, for Bernie Sanders' version of the bill. Uh, I am for free public college. I am for uh, making sure uh, that we uh, have very, very robust protections for, for labor unions and organizing and really should have uh, gotten rid of the parliamentarian to get the $15 minimum wage in the Senate. Uh, but uh, those are things that we can advocate strongly for, uh, and we have a better shot at doing that with Hakeem Jeffries as speaker uh, than with uh, Kevin McCarthy. But Representative Khanna, I'm sorry to belabor this, but surely you can see how folks looking at the past two years of the Biden administration and what happened with Nancy Pelosi in the speakership chair, who is a stronger uh, leader than Hakeem Jeffries just because of her legacy and the power that she's generated over the time that she's been in Congress. None of those agenda items, none of those progressive agenda items have been advanced. We saw the maneuvers that got the $15 minimum wage killed and stripped from the American Rescue Plan. We saw how the Build Back Better bill was bifurcated so that all the good progressive stuff could be junked at the earliest opportunity and blamed on Manchin and Cinema. We've seen people completely stop talking about Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, which Hakeem Jeffries has been, you know, very critical of and won't sign on to, even though he's a New York congressman. Why should progressives, why should people generally on the left, broadly, including the 30 percent of uh, voters who voted for Bernie Sanders, believe that there could be any sincere progress on any of those core popular issues with Hakeem Jeffries in, with, with the gavel in the leadership spot? Well, because we did make progress in the last two years. We made progress on getting a child tax credit. We made progress on massive uh, American Rescue Plan investment in our public schools. Temporary policies that expired, Representative. That's that's people's concern, that there were these pandemic-era policies that were very popular and effective, but those were allowed to lapse, and now people feel like it's back to business as usual and that the progressive momentum has been completely killed. Well, I think that's not giving Senator Sanders and the progressive movement enough credit. I mean, that also led to the historic climate legislation. Now, it's not what you or I would have wanted, 300 uh, billion over 10 years. I mean, we... I'm on the Thrive Act, which is going about a trillion dollar investment every year in really a transformation uh, of our uh, of our clean uh, economy. But I do think that the progressive that uh, this is growing, we have Greg Cesar, we've got Jonathan Jackson, many members. Uh, we're going to continue to advocate. Do I think we can get these goals without a progressive president? No. Do I think ultimately we need uh, to, to take back the House? Yes. But we, we're making progress, and the progress would be much more with the Jeffries uh, than with any Republican uh, having control. Yeah. I, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about something you tweeted um, yesterday. You wrote millions of Ameri that millions of Americans have seen their livelihoods evaporate due to 30 years of bad trade deals that shipped manufacturing jobs overseas. And then you wrote, hashtag Economic patriotism is how we can begin to reverse this process and deliver for the people again. I love this. Um, I also loved it when this was um, Steve Bannon's agenda for getting Trump elected. He famously said, um, you know, we want them talking about racism all day and identity politics day and night. Well, we're going to win with. He called it, of course, economic nationalism. Um, I'm wondering if that chimes for you as well or if I'm just trying to belabor this point that, that you have a lot of potential partners on the the right when it comes to this kind of economic populism? Well, I believe that these trade deals were terrible. NAFTA, the WTO, we made a colossal mistake letting our factories go offshore. I think the difference with economic patriotism is it doesn't reject the value of immigrants. It doesn't reject 
the value of engaging in a global economy. It simply says that America ought to leave there. America ought to be uh, investing in our factories. And philosophically, where I disagree with Steve Bannon and the Trump agenda is their view of it was let's get the corporate tax cuts and that would somehow bring these factories back. I know a lot of these uh, corporate CEOs in my district at Intel would take the tax cut and put the factories in Malaysia. I think what we need is the government to say, we're going to invest uh, in these companies if they invest in America and in American labor. And so it's a different philosophy. I'd say it's more in common with FDR uh, than with Steve Bannon. <laughs> but uh, to the extent people want to be for the goal of bringing factories back and bringing industry back in this country, I'll work with anyone. I have a bill with Marco Rubio uh, to try to do that. Rokana, you mentioned uh, a little while ago that you don't think any number of progressive um, priorities will be pursued absent having a progressive candidate, uh, perhaps more progressives represented in Congress. I wonder what you think when you look at how much leverage these 20 rebellious Republicans have garnered for themselves not by having a uh, uh, Republican in the White House and not by having overwhelming majorities in the House or a majority at all in the Senate, but by using this procedural maneuver, by exploiting the fact that they have a narrow margin so that a small number of people can hold up the entire government's agenda. Do you look at that and say, given the lack of likelihood that progressives are going to have these overwhelming majorities or to win the White House in the, in the near future. And given the gravity of the crises that we are facing as a country, the health care crises, the housing crises, the, the, and on and on and on and on, do you have regrets about progressives not using that opportunity to do the same thing back in 2021 when there was a force of vote moment whereby progressives could be the ones that are grandstanding right now. And instead of talking about vague procedural issues, really highlighting substantive concerns and holding the Democratic Party hostage until they deliver on things like, let's say, for example, immediately signing uh, an executive order to cancel all student debt before it could be obstructed by the courts. Well, I, I, I heard the sense of urgency, but I think you're uh, adjective of grandstanding is accurate of what uh, people on the on the right are doing. Uh, look, it's easy if your ideology is we just want to shut everything down. We're not. We don't want to raise the debt ceiling. We want to shut government down. Uh, maybe they'll succeed uh, in doing that. Though right now it's unclear if they're going to get any of their policy recommendations. But on the progressive left, we have uh, something which is far tougher. We're telling people to affirmatively pass legislation create Medicare for all, uh, create uh, dental vision uh, and hearing benefits for seniors, uh, raise the wage. You can't do that just by a, a sense of we're going to blow the place up. You've got to actually get people to draft the legislation, support the legislation. So I think the tactics are different because we're trying to build something. They're trying to just uh, blow up institutions by their own uh, their own. Uh, definition of what they consider success. Do you believe that Nancy Pelosi would not have acquiesced? I'm sorry, Batya. But do you believe that she would not have acquiesced, that she would have risked the gavel, had voting go on for days or weeks, et cetera, instead of exchanging it for something as simple as committing to signing the executive order uh, to cancel student debt, or let's say actually having the floor vote, vote on the bill to uh, vote uh, to see if you can end uh, insider trading in uh, the House, something which people have argued and it's been reported on that she quietly killed because she's expressed displeasure at being prevented from uh, trading as a Congress member? Do you think that she would have, uh, you know, basically not, not acquiesced to those kind of demands? And if you believe she would have acquiesced to those kind of demands, do you have regrets over not actually trying to get those real concrete concessions for the left? Uh, 
Well, look, I support obviously the ban on on, on, on stock trading. That came up about into our speakership at the time of the speakership. What people were talking about was Medicare for all, and I don't think she uh, would have acquiesced to being able to deliver Medicare for all because the votes aren't there right now uh, in 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 the House of Representatives. So my view of it is that we need to build a progressive caucus with people who are going to uh, vote for it. We need to elect a, a, a progressive president or a progressive nominee. We need to change the party. If you remember in 2020, I voted against the platform of our own party because it did not have Medicare for all. We need to start with that. Uh, and uh, I, I, yes, could we have a grandstand and gotten in, in the news for a week? Sure. Do I think that would have gotten us any closer to Medicare for all or $15 wage? I honestly don't. If I thought but, it but, would, but I, I would have But Representative Khanna, it. it could be any ask, not just Medicare for all. So we could talk about any number of executive orders. We could talk about the kind of procedural changes, PAYGO exemptions, the debt ceiling, all of the things that you've said you think you could potentially get out of the Republican obstruction in this moment. Why the optimism about what you can get out of the Republicans in negotiations now, but short-sightedness about what Democrats could have gotten in the same moment in 2021? Well, what I'm trying to get out of the Republicans is, are things that uh, the speaker would agree with. I'm trying to say we need to increase the debt ceiling. We shouldn't shut down the government. Uh, we shouldn't have frivolous investigations on Biden. Uh, Pelosi or uh, King Jeffries would agree with all of that. Uh, we're trying to get the Republicans to a place where they're concerned about governing. There are two separate questions, Brianna. One is, can we actually govern in a way uh, that is uh, sensible? Uh, and then the broader question, can we get progressive goals that actually help, help the working class? Right now, we've got the first crisis, which is uh, just can we have sane people governing and not have this country default on the debt? That isn't sufficient for our politics. We have that broader aspirations of progressive politics. But I think the only way we get those broader progressive aspirations is winning at the local level, state level, governorships, state parties, changing the party and having someone like Sanders ultimately win the nomination. So one last final question, really quick. Um, speaking of working class Americans and actual legislation, um, there was a bill introduced by Andy Levin and um, Congressman Van Drew, a bipartisan bill called the Guaranteeing Truckers Overtime Act. All it does is say that truckers may no longer be exempt from overtime, which they are right now. Um, Andy Levin lost his primary, and so he's no longer in Congress. I'm wondering if um, this bill has crossed your path and if it's something that you would support. Your description, I would strongly support it. I, it has not crossed my path. I appreciate you raising it, and I'll have my team look into it. Andy Levin was one of the uh, best uh, Congress people for working class issues, first congressional office to unionize. Uh, he's been out there, and I'm sure if he's backing it, it's the right type of priority for working class Americans, and I'm glad it's bipartisan. Yeah, Andrew Levin, of course, famously attacked by uh, 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 the DMFI super PAC that uh, helped to lead to him not winning his race. Another instance of this kind of Democratic Party, that, which oftentimes weaponizes itself against the left. I'm sure that's an ongoing conversation we'll be having. Representative, we appreciate you so much joining us here today. Always enjoy it. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll have more rising for you right after this. of thought is a good thing. It's one of the things that sets us apart from our friends on the other side of the aisle. Yes, diversity of thought is a good thing. But they want us divided. They want us to fight each other. That much has been made clear by the popcorn and blankets and alcohol that is coming over there. The house is not in order. 
the House is not in order. That was Republican Congresswoman Kat Kamek of Florida in a speech encouraging her colleagues to vote for Kevin McCarthy for a House Speaker. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez took to Twitter to respond to the accusation that Dems had been drinking during the Speaker vote, saying, quote, if only, if Dems took a shot every time McCarthy lost a Republican, we'd all be unconscious by now. <laughs> but yeah, do you think it's true? Are the, are the Dems really getting sloshed on the House floor? I just love this story. I really hope they are. I thought it was a totally <laughs> cute and funny dig at them. I didn't, you know, the sounds that I heard, I mean, you couldn't see because the camera was still on Congresswoman Kamek, but it sounded to me like it was all in good fun and all good natured, um, which, you know, if they were drunk, certainly would have helped. But all I could say is, uh, I think that if I were a congressperson today, just saying there might be a little bit of a, a little bit of a, of a, of, of drinking going on there. What about you, Brianna? Yeah, there's this weird, I don't know what's going on here in terms of the culture of these parties anymore. I mean, there used yeah. to be a time that conservatives were cool and George Bush went, you know, wanted to have a beer with him. And, you know, there was a kind of uptight clinical academic puritanism about uh, the elite Democrats. And now we're seeing Republicans taking a dig at the idea of eating popcorn in the chamber. I mean, it's all over the place. I guess it's, to, to the congresswoman's point, good to have a certain level of ideological diversity and, and not having these kind of um, um, cultural, uh, cultural trends being so like, regimented by party. But look, I, I enjoy it. I'm with you. I think it was fun kind of on both sides. Uh, if I were a Republican, I probably would not like the popcorn and the blankets and the booze and the, and the open enjoyment that Democrats are experiencing right now over what Republicans are going through. And if I were a Democrat, I probably would like to turn the screw and enjoy the dysfunction on the other side. I mean, it's also going on for a long time, you know, it's sort of endless. And um, it turns out, you know, popcorn and alcohol were not the only unusual items that have been brought into the Capitol during the speakership vote. Uh, Representative Jimmy Gomez tweeted an image of his baby after a diaper change on the Democratic cloakroom floor. He was joined by Congressman Joaquim Castro and his baby girl in a photo shared by Representative Salud Carbajo saying, quote, I wonder what age their kids will be by the time we have a speaker of the the house. This is just so charming and adorable. I mean, what could be more wonderful than seeing these babies in this place where they really don't belong? I just think it's great. And, you know, you're just seeing a lot of stuff that you don't usually see. Uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez speaking to Matt Gates and Paul Goser, who have both offended her very greatly in the past, just bucking up and, and, and being, you know, just a champ and being totally polite and having, you know, good conversations, you know, I, I just think that there's, um, you know, it, I don't want to say I'm enjoying it because I think that, you know, the problems are real. We need a speaker of the house. I really feel for everybody involved. But these sort of charming little moments that are coming out, I am enjoying them a lot. I mean, you mentioned what we're seeing, and I completely agree. We're, we're seeing all of this kind of natural, organic um, interaction between camps yeah. that are so polarized that I do frankly think is kind of healthy. But one of the reasons we're seeing it is that quite literally C-SPAN has the ability to control where its cameras look before a speaker is seated. After a speaker is seated, it's the party in the control that gets to decide where the cameras look and what is shown in the chamber. That's part of why we've been able to zoom in on certain kinds of conversations, pan around the room in a way that people have, have noticed is not typically the case. 
And that's another thing, frankly, if, if the Democrats are going to hold out for concessions, if these rogue Republicans are holding out for concessions, I'd like for one of them to be a little bit more freedom for the C-SPAN cameras, because there is something, I think, to be gained from a Democratic perspective and having more literal perspective in the room and having more um, insight into what's going on behind the scenes. People seem engaged over this. When I've talked to strangers, when I've been in cab rides and, and chatted with people, this comes up. This fight over the speakership comes up. And I don't think it's just because it's about nasty conflict. I think it's because people have been wanting a better peek into how decisions get made and the human mm -hmm. side of Congress for a really long time. Yeah, at the same time, a counterpoint to that would be, I think a real problem has been how uh, politicians have become kind of mini celebrities in their mm. own right, you know, or like ersatz celebrities, right? Twitter celebrities. Um, and, and I think that's really unhealthy because I think that really does drive polarization. It makes people feel like they have a really high stake in being nasty. And so to the extent that seeing more of these interactions, you know, would, would perpetuate that, right? You see them on a screen, you see them sort of, you know, in situ, right? Like, you know, behaving in ways you wouldn't expect. And then, you know, to glamorize them too much, I feel also is maybe something we should be on guard against. Yeah, fair enough. I am guilty of liking a reality television program. <laughs> so, well, I, I appreciate what you're saying from kind of like a substantive and like moral perspective. As, as a consumer, you know, we just we yeah. did a segment today about uh, CNN and MSNBC's flagging numbers. As a consumer, I have to say the human aspect of it does really drive my attention. And moreover, you know, maybe to your point, you might get less, you know, of these singular celebrities, fewer of these singular celebrities, if the attention were more diffuse. So getting mm. attention on some of these um, Republicans that have been put forward uh, as the prospective speaker, you know, kind of ceremonially, nobody really meet, thinks that these people are going to um, be contenders for the job. But getting to know some of these figures as they've stood up and made their remarks on the floor, given interviews outside of Congress, has been edifying. Um, and I think useful to me. I, I, I hate when a, a, a Congress member's name comes up and I've never heard of them before. And they're from maybe even my state. Uh, and it's, it's a little embarrassing. So I think this exposure ultimately is sort of healthy. Yeah, great point. <laughs> All right. We'll have more rising for you right after this. The first cable news ratings of the year are out. On Monday, January 2nd, Fox News came out on top garnering 1.3 million total daily views. That is three times the number of views competitor network CNN got. Just over half a million turned into CNN, while MSNBC came in second with 913,000 total views. CNN's new CEO, Chris Licht, has turned the network upside down since taking over last year, axing staff, making changes to lineups, shuffling hosts around, all in an effort to boost its ratings and views, apparently unsuccessfully. Um, you know, Brianna, I am not one of these who I, I likes to sort of dance on the, I, I think that a lot of the commentary around this is uh, like needlessly jubilant. I, mm. I think it's really sad um, that they're struggling to be um, a respected, trusted news source. Um, but, you know, I, I don't I don't I, I wish them well with it. And I think that, you know, there was a need for some sort of reshuffling. And I remain hopeful that, you know, Licht will find some way to turn the ship around. I think that the, the key to it is something that they're still missing, which is what we do here, which is robust debate. 
people want to see debate. They want to hear the other side. They want to see people engaging with people they disagree with. They want to see that. I mean, that I think that that is really the thing that I would say watching a lot of CNN, as one does, um, you know, and something that actually Fox has much more of. They have a lot of panels throughout the day where they feature Democrats and liberals. Um, so I, I think that that really, to me, is um, where, you know, The Five, which is an extremely popular show on Fox, um, they always have a seated Democrat. And, mm-hmm. you know, that Democrat often loses against four Republicans or conservatives. But, you know, you get to hear the other side. And I think that is so key. What do you think, Brianna? Yeah, I think that's a great point, you know, to the extent that the mainstream liberal shows do have ideological diversity, do have a Republican sitting there. It is always a never Trump Republican who, frankly, yeah. doesn't really reflect the ideology of the overall majority of conservatives in the country. It's, it's a safe Republican who is, frankly, you know, liberal in a kind of traditional classical sense and has the exact same opinions on everything as the establishment Dems who are hired to work at those kinds of channels. I mean, it is entirely true that, you know, and I, I say this with all, you know, all due respect, if you look at some of these shows, if you look at The View, et cetera, they're much more likely to hire someone who, you know, worked in the Trump campaign than someone who worked in the Bernie campaign. <laughs> They're much more likely to have someone who has been critical of Trump, despite being you know, close to them in the past, than someone who has been critical of Joe Biden. And that really, I think, speaks to the fact that this is an establishment, anti-establishment issue, and these mainstream news networks have not gotten the lesson that they need to have more anti-establishment voices. So I agree with you that some of the kind of dancing on the grave of media institutions is distasteful. A part of me, a part of my sympathy is diminished by the fact that these lessons have been out there for a long time. The writing has been on the wall for the for a long time. Yeah. And for some reason, and I don't think it's a financial reason because the finances are not good under the plan that they're currently operating under. But I, I, it seems an ideological reason they absolutely refuse to have outsiders on these networks and it's really hurting them and they could choose they could choose to change that at any time. Yeah, and I will just say, I don't know that you'll agree with me about this, but, um, you know, CNN back in 2012, it had the same percentage of working class viewers as Fox did, actually. 25% mm. of its viewers had a college degree, which is the same for, was the same for Fox in 2012. Fast forward to 2019, and 25% of Fox viewers have a college degree. And it back in 2019, it was something like 45% of CNN viewers at this point had a college degree, meaning over that 10-year span they managed to lose their working class liberal audience, many of whom did defect to Fox. We know that Tucker Carlson is the most viewed show, not just among Republicans, but also among Democrats. And some people say, oh, they're hate watching. I don't think people sit around and hate watch an hour long show at night when they're tired. I think a lot of liberal working class people, many people tell me this, they watch Tucker Carlson because he has that class point of view. And so the question is, how did CNN squander that viewership? And, you know, I, I, I'm sure you don't like this word, and I don't know what you'll think of this analysis, but to me, it seems pretty clear that um, it was it was a woke perspective that started to dominate a very college-educated view of gender and race and other things that sort of pushed out economic concerns in order to focus on concerns that, um, you know, make leftists feel like heroes without asking them for any kind of economic sacrifice. And, and I'll just make one more point, which is that, um, you know, the demonization, not just of Trump, but of the Trump voter, um, and I, I think you would agree with me about yeah. this, 
it was it, it was really it, it wasn't just um, you know that they deserve to to be bankrupted for that. It was immoral and it hurt our country because those are our fellow Americans and they weren't voting for Trump out of some sort of hatred. They were voting for him because they had been abandoned by both parties with this sort of neoliberal consensus embodied by NAFTA and things like that. Um, uh, both parties, you know, obviously NAFTA was Democrats and, and then, you know, the free markets, you know, free market p- perspective on both sides. And I think that that demonization was really, I mean, if there's one thing that, I, you know, we should all be fighting, it's demonization of people on the other side, whether it's by saying that they're racist because they voted for Trump or that they're groomers because they think everybody should live in dignity. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you there. I, I wouldn't use the word woke just because I think that so many things that are substantive and frankly very class-related are subsumed under the wokeness label, you know, mm-hmm. to the extent that various groups have been historically denied um, economic privilege because of their identity. Yes. It's important yeah. to address those kinds of things. Um, but I, I do think that what has happened is the priorities, the topic priorities of people in the liberal media sphere and academic sphere and more and broadly are the kinds of identity-based concerns that concern elites. So while there are these important overlaps between identity, racial identity, uh, and class identity, and also things like rural identity and class identity, what's been happening with um, low-income white people in this country is another kind of, I'd say, identity class issue that deserves to be talked about, along with a lot of these other historically marginalized identity groups. They don't talk about that stuff. What they yeah. talk about is the kind of identity concerns that, that um, you know, concern elites, per, per people in, in, in um, the upper echelon of our society. So did Oprah get discriminated against for uh, when she tried to buy a $40,000 handbag? Did some celebrity get pulled over by a cop, et cetera, et cetera? And, and it's not that those things should happen. I don't think that Oprah should be discriminated right. against. But at a certain point, the kinds of topics that they talk about seem so out of touch when people yeah. are struggling. People of all backgrounds are struggling in so, in so many material ways. So I think you're, I think you're completely right there. And um, shout out to your amazing book, in which you uh, really rally a lot of those statistics you were citing about the shift in the demographic trends in media uh, over the course of the last, you know, a couple hundred years of, of American media. That's really kind of you. Thank you, Brianna. Yeah, please. Strong, strong recommend if, if listeners <laughs> haven't read it already. Batya, thank you so much for being here with me today. Uh, and we'll see. Oh, what a pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's nice to have a little... Um, can I say girl power? Is that too identity? Identity based for me to say I like this energy here today. Uh, but Robbie will be back and we'll see you next week with uh, on Monday, me, uh, Robbie, on Tuesday, as always. Make sure to tune in tomorrow for the rest, uh, the best rather, of Rising. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're also on Roku and other streaming services. So there is no excuse whatsoever for you not to tune in. (laughs) All right. Bye-bye, everyone.